us, the relationship between science, film, and media has long been intertwined. We're here to dissect that relationship, turning it inside out for all to see. And throughout the years, one truth has revealed itself. You don't need good science to make a good movie. But it sure makes it better! Hi everyone and welcome to a very special episode of the Real Science Podcast, the podcast where four highly qualified professionals pick a movie and then pick apart the science. My name is Kenan Smith. My name is Sean Crossan. I'm Michael Pace. And I'm Tori Mackle. Ooh, who are you? I am lucky enough to work with these fabulous gentlemen and they were courteous enough to invite me to be on the show today. That's so I'm sweet. I'm super happy to be of here. Of us. We are such nice guys. We are nice guys. That's what I hear. I've yet to see that uh, in action, though. Mm. Tori actually works with us uh, and is in the same program that we're all in. Yay. And she also works on gene therapy. Yeah. Hey. Do, you, do you want to give us a brief explanation of things that you know about for, for the listeners? What do you do? So, in summary, I take... Adeno-associated virus capsid. So similar to what Kenan has told you that he was <gasps> on previously, we actually used to work together. <laughs> hey. But then I ventured out on my own, took my little um, stick with a handkerchief tied to the end, went to a new lab, and nice. started working on ocular gene therapy. So what we do there is I optimize vectors to target the photoreceptors in the eye to help restore vision in people who have been um, afflicted with some kind of degenerative retinal disease. Very nice. Very super cool. cool. Yeah. Awesome. You make the blind see. Yeah. A lot of the work that we do um, targets people that are usually children, young kids. It's a reason to go to work every day, for sure. It really is. Yeah. So this time, I know you've listened to at least one of of our episodes. Mm -hmm. What do we normally try and do on this podcast? So you normally watch a movie and then analyze and rate the movie based on its entertainment value and its scientific accuracy. That's wow. what we, she said that much faster than we normally That's do. That's probably yeah. what we try and do. We also spend about like 30 minutes just talking about random bullshit, but you know, <laughs> I guess maybe this time we'll try and narrow it sure, down. I thought this was a family podcast. Oh no, oh, sorry. Oh, maybe oh. we should go to Pace for our disclaimers. <laughs> Pace, give us some disclaimers, please. We do have some disclaimers, and that is a two-part story that we have. As Sean has already demonstrated, uh, we will sometimes curse on this podcast, and that's because we record it at approximately 9.45 p.m. in the evening time. 9.44. That's why I said approximately, Kenan. Um, Second disclaimer, uh, we are pissed off almost all of the time. That's true. Uh, And because of that, we we see bad science and we like to point it out. But we also do the same with good science, and so we're going to try to do that. For this film. And what was the film that we watched today? Gattaca! We watched Gattaca. We've had this requested uh, several times, so I'm not even going to attempt to list the number of people who told us that we should watch Gattaca, because a lot of people have wanted us to talk about this movie. But to everybody that suggested it, thank you for your <laughs> thank suggestions. You. Thank you. Yeah. Um, say thank you to the nice people. Thanks. Thanks, peeps. You know Kristen Wiig actually suggested this movie? Yeah, it's we pretty got a direct I heard email Tim from Tebow her. also wanted this movie. Yeah, he was like, yeah. guys, huge fan of the show, really hate Michael Pace, maybe you should kick him off, I can come join you, and I was like, Tim, in a heartbeat, just <laughs> yeah. like say the word. Tim Pace Tebow probably, he probably hates this movie. I would guess. You know who uh, <laughs> didn't want us to do this movie? Ethan Hawke. Well, Ethan Hawke also didn't want to do this movie because he was a pretty shit actor. In <laughs> oh, come on. So. And there it is. Yeah, now we've got, great. Now we've got the face. one person in this movie you hated. All right, so just to keep track. So, again, we did Gattaca, which is starring Ethan Hawke, Jude Law, Uma Thurman, Alan Arkin. Who else is in it? There's, Alan Arkin's in it. Uh, uh, 
It was produced by Danny Monk. DeVito. Yeah, it was. Produced yeah, by Tony Shalhoub is in it. Tony Shalhoub is in it. So there's a I only know and recognize as Monk. As Monk, right. But so he so there's a pretty good cast. It's a, you know, fairly popular movie that when it came out in 97, but again, you know, to add to the track record, uh Pace really hates Ethan Hawke for some reason. He thinks he's to, a bad actor. To be so. fair, this is the first film that I've seen Ethan Hawke in that I know of and the acting was just completely horrific. <laughs> Uh, just bottom of your shoe, disgusting. Wow. Okay. Well, so I guess Ethan. Well, at least you're not um, like giving any polarizing opinions. So yeah, I usually right. I try. I try not to. Pace does a really good job about you know staying uh, non-biased. It's really I try to I try to temper my uh, my opinions. Okay. Well, uh, Ethan Hawke aside, hopefully he can forgive us for Pace's rude comments against him, but. Why don't we talk about... It's not rude if it's true, Sean. Okay, sure. You know sure. what? I, I'm, I'm putting a stop to this space. Ethan <laughs> Hawk, thank you very much for training day. It was a very enjoyable <laughs> So, let's get in to the movie. <laughs> oh, wait. Sorry, we'll do that later. Oh, okay, yeah, sorry. We'll do that okay. later. So, the premise of the movie Yattica, just a quick like, one-sentence thing, is basically um, it's this disu- dystopian futuristic society where everybody is engineered like they're test tube babies, essentially, right? So their embryos are selected, people engineer their children to be, like, quote, genetically perfect. Right. So it's most people who are born are born by this idea of, like, the genetic ideal. So they're physically selected during the the process. Right. Do we, is it established that it's most people? It's, or is it a, a select few who can afford it? Do they so discuss they that? they do talk about that. They say that um, it is rarer than mm-hmm. it used to be for people to have naturally conceived children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other thing that uh, should so be of note, too, moving toward everyone. Is, is that a lot of the people that you see later on who are uh, invalid or invalids or whatever are older. So there aren't, like, they, they don't ever address, like, kids at this point. Right. The only people that, yeah, exactly. So it's sort of generally accepted in the tone of the movie that most people are doing this sort of genetic screening and that, you know, it's the ideal way of producing children. Um, Ethan Hawke, he plays the main character who I guess is Vincent, but he ends up impersonating Jerome, which we will talk about later in the movie. Jerome Morrow. So the opening scene of the movie, Ethan Hawke is narrating and he's talking about how his parents decided to have a quote, godchild, meaning that he's like, or whatever they called him. They left it in the lap of the gods. Right. So he was was the faith child. He was naturally born, naturally conceived. Um, And so the next scene is in a hospital where Ethan Hawke is being born, and they show some pretty interesting, you know, techniques for determining the genetic risk factors for disease at the time of birth. So, Tori, what did they they do in this scene? So immediately when he's born, they take him uh, away from his mother and they do a heel prick test. So this is pretty common nowadays. Most babies actually undergo a heel prick um, test when they are born. The standard infant screening includes tests for fetal ketonuria, which needs to be caught really early in newborns. Otherwise, bad things happen to babies with metabolic disorders. Mm -hmm. Uh, The initial infant screening also checks for hearing loss and enzyme deficiencies that uh, are common in other metabolic diseases. But something interesting about what happens with the infant screening at Gattaca is that they sequence his entire genome in a matter of seconds. Or so we're led to believe. Or so we're led to believe, right. And and along with that printout with the GACT sequences um, comes probabilities of inherited diseases. Mm -hmm. And so the nurse reads off this big long list of things like myopia, 
heart disease and And cardiac defects and just a a laundry list of things that are going to be wrong with him and and how likely percentage wise it is for him to inherit those traits exactly and the and the over or the narration that we get from ethan hawk is the moment i was born my parents were informed of when i would die and how i would die Mm. he has a 99 percent chance of like heart failure they say by age 30 so they estimate his life to be like around 30, 32, 30.2 30. years. 30.2 years. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think that the, they, they pulled off almost like it's bought something at the grocery store, right? They pull out the receipt. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They make it look like this with this kind of visual effect. But I think for for 1997, they had to have seen his DNA very quickly in this mm-hmm. moment, right? Instantaneously. The, the, the way in which it happens, I think that the, the cost of sequencing I mean, in 1997. Well, and then the sequencing technologies were being just—they were being piloted at best. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, the the costs have decreased exponentially. Um, so even though in 1997 this idea would have been miraculous to be able to do this, like an actual miracle, mm-hmm. uh, the science just simply wasn't there. Whereas now we are incredibly close to maybe not sequencing someone's entire DNA or at least certain subsets that we think are associated with predispositions for disease instantaneously uh we're getting there and that's a that's a point that we brought up during the movie and and briefly before starting recording that it's more likely that what these folks would have done at least in regards to uh what actually occurs in real life uh is that they would have been looking for specific gene loci uh to sequence quickly in order to get results for different diseases that they're specifically looking for so like we can assume that in this not so distant future they know exactly what defects that they would see in a specific area of the human genome or in SNPs, which Sean can talk about a little bit, um, that would cause a person to be predisposed uh, to a certain percentage towards heart disease or something similar. Right. And they, they actually do a good thing in this movie, and they do not discuss that, oh, the whole genome can be sequenced yep. or anything. They just go like, a solid move. blood draw. Bing. You have a predisposition for this, and there's a big thing full of like nucleotides on it. But they don't talk about like we're sequencing the whole thing. We're sequencing certain genes with known risk factors, anything like that. They're just kind of like we can engineer your baby. I appreciated that so much about this movie because we've watched a couple movies now where they like try they, and explain it. They try and explain it. They give in depth in, uh, information. They do too much. Right. Exactly. Whereas by this movie, by not doing a whole lot. You can, the audience member, depending on what they want to imagine, can just fill in the gaps, so right. to speak. But for historical context, in 1997, they hadn't even finished the Human Genome Project. That was right. still three years away from completion at the yeah. end of 2000. Yep. Yeah. So he's born, right? The beginning is him sort of narrating the struggle he's had in his life where, like, everybody viewed him differently. <coughs> viewed him as like, fragile. Yeah, they really viewed him as fragile. They knew that he was going, everyone saw that, oh, he's going to die by age 30 because of his genetic background. And that's how they identified him, basically. So he was talking about, you know, as he's growing up, going to preschool, getting a job and stuff like that was going to be difficult. And so his parents actually end up conceiving a second child. But this time they go through this modernized, like, gene and embryonic selection process. Right. They they create a designer baby. Yeah, they make a designer baby. Yeah. Um, I think that at this point, now that we've kind of brought up the, just this idea of a designer baby, mm-hmm. it could be good to talk about the feasibility of just selecting for traits in general in our children today. Mm-hmm. Um, so this kind of idea is just called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, 
or PGD, this point on PGD. Uh, and so what the doctors will do is they'll isolate a few cells from the approximately three to five day old embryo. And then they will sequence the DNA present in those cells, and then they'll screen it for any potentially fatal diseases or, or defects or what have you. Um, that's what happens today. And I think that a lot of the jumps that happen from that we, we proceed to happen from doing just looking for diseases uh, will be for looking for, you know, more aesthetically pleasing right. aspects of human beings. More, more complex things than, oh, there's a specific mutation, so this person is going to have hemophilia, or there's a mutation that causes them to have cystic fibrosis, cystic fibrosis Huntington's, uh, yeah, right. hypothalamus disorders. And we see this in the movie, right? Because mm-hmm. at this meeting, when they're trying to conceive their designer baby, the person who's walking them through the process is telling them like we took the liberty of like eliminating any potential discriminatory things like male pattern baldness or like vision problems or like crooked teeth being short like random aesthetic things that people do spend money currently to try and merit that are obviously valued in society to some extent but They basically just say like, "Oh, we just eliminate those, so they don't have to." Which is crap them. because we don't have, in this world we don't have any Jason Statham's. So that's what that means. <laughs> or Bruce Willis. For or that Bruce matter. Willis. I. Yeah. Or my husband. Oh no. Oh, oh no, no, Trevor. No. <laughs> oh, Trevor. Oh, it's terrible. okay. He's got enough hair on his face for the <laughs> <laughs> God bless him. <laughs> Uh, also, interestingly, they talk about eliminating traits for alcoholism and susceptibility to addiction, mm-hmm. which is something that I personally found really interesting because of the current political climate, which I'm not going to go into, but opiate sure. addiction is a really big issue in this country. And so that's something that may be interesting to us down the road. I and I like that because although it's on the end of the spectrum, along with, you know, specific like behaviors that is more ridiculous than screening for things like a propensity towards cystic fibrosis... It is probably the one of the ones that would be the least controversial at all, because if you were to ask anyone about that, like, oh, yeah, sure, I'd love it if my child was, you know, a lot less likely to get addicted to heroin. Yeah, but I I think an an important thing to point out in this is that for every trait they're considering, it's based on the premise that in this world they've created here, they know what gene or combinations of genes result in whatever phenotype or effect that they're trying to either uh, happen or, or, or keep from happening. Well, and you, you raise a good point, too, because it's not even during this process of selection, but they use it as identifiers for the for people for the rest of their lives as well. So when we'll get into this a little bit later, but like, say, during an interview process, like if you're looking for someone for a specific job, uh, even if there have been specific traits that have been left in, you can say that, okay, someone is, you know, has 20% violent tendencies or, like, might be, you know, slightly towards violence. For a job as, like, a boxer, no one's going to care. But for a job as, like, a nanny, someone might. So even beyond just screening initially in order to create a child, uh, everywhere else for the rest of their lives, this, you know, percentage of things that you might be or percentage of behaviors or, or propensities towards a behavior are considered every step of the way. I think there's also, like, kind of the fallacy that they're basing everything on your genetic identity yeah. and completely ignoring the environmental impacts yeah. that things are going to have. Like, it's the Jurassic Park law. Right, exactly. Yeah. Like, you can, like not everything is determined just based on your genetics. Like, the, the way you are raised and your environment that you're in is going to 
affect your behavior, I would say, more so than your genetics. Well, the nice thing was, though, is that when later on when Ethan Hawke starts uh, killing a bunch of people, um, (laughs) the people around him... When he turns into a velociraptor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The people around him stop feeding him lysine, and then he just passes out. But then he becomes female and can reproduce. That's right, and then Ethan Hawke becomes female, has sex with Uma Thurman. Do we watch the same movie? Probably not. Mm. Are we done with this bit? Which is called Ethan Park. Ethan Park. <laughs> Ethan Park. <laughs> and Jeff Goldblum. Jurassic Hawk. Jurassic, Jurassic Hawk. <laughs> Life finds a way. All right. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. We t- <laughs> All right, so back to the movie. So again, his parents are making these, their designer kid, and they kind of, you know, they're a less comfortable with the situation because they've never done it before, and right. they wanted their first kid to be a natural birth, but... They decide to make Anton, right? Uh, Ethan's. I keep saying Ethan, Vincent's brother, which the is character is Vincent. An interesting point, just real quick. Sorry to interrupt you, but I was yeah. going to say uh, earlier on in the movie when the dad, played by Elias Codius, mm-hmm. finds out that uh, Ethan Hawke's character Vincent might die. Uh, his wife initially suggests the name Anton, and his dad bumps in and says, "Oh no, no, no Vincent." Because the father is named Anton. Right, so he didn't want to name his kid after him because he was like, oh, he's going to be dead And so they made his father's name his middle name and then named his genetically designed perfect brother after his father, which is super fucked up. Right. In a Freudian way. It reminds me of my sweet Audrina in this weird peripheral way, but V.C. Andrews is super crazy and we're not going to talk about that right now. If you want to talk about my sweet Audrina, email me. (laughs) <laughs> hit me up on my facebook my yeah, twitter but... account <laughs> and then they, they basically go through a lot of scenes of them growing up where like people treat him like he's fragile and mm-hmm. Anton is just excelling past Vincent even though he's the older brother and he's very down about it they have these like contests where they swim out this is a big like point in the movie I don't really know why they have a swimming contest it's a metaphor swimming they have, chicken they have a swimming contest where they swim out I guess presumably into the ocean because um, there's waves as far as they can go a and kelp then forest. turn back. Yeah, and the kelp forest and they play chicken and the whole thing is like Vincent always loses because he's just not genetically designed like his brother and that's holding him back. And when Sean says they play chicken he doesn't mean that they swim at each other as fast as possible. He means they swim out into the ocean and then the first one to chicken out and come back loses. Yes, that is what I mean by chicken. Just as, trying just to, to not drown. <laughs> exactly. So, that's sort of a theme, and as he's getting older, he really, his dream is to go to space, and he, he wants, wants to, to join astronaut. he wants to be an astronaut, he wants to join Gattaca, which is the, like, astronaut organization, I guess, in this world. Yep. And they, he watches the shuttle launches, he studies all the time, he studies his physics, his math, and he's hell-bent on going there, and his dad basically tells him, like, you're not going to get a job at Gattaca. The only way you're getting in there is if you're cleaning the place. Right. Because of your genetic background. It doesn't matter how much you know. It doesn't matter how much you train. They're not going to hire you because no one sees you for what you are. That kind of circles back to what Kenan was trying to touch on, is that there's discrimination based on your genetic profile, even though discrimination based on you know, race, creed, age, sex, whatever is is illegal by law, they can still get around those laws using your genetic profile as a loophole. Yep. And they mentioned this a couple times when Mm -hmm. he goes in for interviews and, and, you know, they say, uh, oh, he he says you can pull it off of uh, doorknobs from a handshake. Mm -hmm. Like if they make you pee in a cup for a drug screening, they can just use any DNA that they get from that in order to screen you and discriminate in that that manner. Yep. They actually use this horrible pun 
in the movie where he says people call us degenerates. Yeah, like, I hate it. I hate it so did, much. and it's it's awful. It's I hate a, it. It's the worst plot. It's I've a ever garbage heard. joke. I love puns. It's a crap joke. A, in the movie, like, want to make sure I understand this. That a degenerate is someone who is like masquerading as somebody who actually is gene- genetically fit for a position, no, but is actually not. No, that or, is someone who's an invalid. This is just someone. Just any. Oh, just yeah. in general. Just they in refer general. to them as the degenerates. degenerates. Like a seventies yeah. mom, they have bad genes. That's really bad. It's really bad, and it's not. It's yeah. It's. That was good, get in, Thanks, by the way. Good, great job. Tori's flicking me off. Uh, right. cool. <laughs> but yeah, I so. No such thing. Well, I was going to say, the other thing, too, is the scene where he, he talks to his son, this really, in this manner, which is, of course, a horrible thing to say to your child, really sort of drives the nail home on the relationship between his dad and uh, and Ethan Hawke's character, uh, which kind of brings up a, a good point that you were gonna, you were talking about earlier, Pace, this idea of, like, a replacement child. I was gonna. I was gonna discuss that because while we're talking about kind of the the dynamic between Ethan Hawke and his brother in this film, the natural birth versus the selected birth, um, there are some fertility clinics in the U.S. that will allow parents to produce what's called a savior sibling. Um, this was. This is not directly mirrored in the film. Uh, but it's kind of related. So um, let's say that these, a couple were to have their first child okay. via, via natural birth. Right. And it's known based upon some sort of disease or disorder that this child has uh, that eventually, later on in life, they're going to need some sort of transplant or donor for something in order to fix that issue. Say, like, they're almost guaranteed to have kidney failure or something. Right. And they'll need a kidney donation later on in life. Polycystic uh, kidney disease. Sure. Polycystic kidney Poly, disease. Poly, mm. Cauliflower kidney Cauliflower disease. kidney pox. Disease. Pox. Pox. It's, it's the cauliflower kidney pox. Pizza kidney. Yeah. Pizza kidney. That's definitely what it is. So then, Cheese. Pizza. <laughs> what the, what the, Jesus. what you can do in at least, as far as I know, about 30 fertility clinics in the U.S., you can, uh, the parents can basically create, I say create, conceive what's called... <laughs> A savior, Forge. a savior In child. In the fires of Mount Doom, <laughs> they reach into the soul furnace. <laughs> so they'll create, they'll create this this savior, this savior sibling. Of course, via in vitro fertilization, because this is the only way to do this. That is selected to have, and most importantly, the same uh, immune system genes or the same uh, types of uh, immune cells. The that, same HLA type. Same HLA type. Thank you, Kenan that will be immune-friendly for the first kid yep. so that that sibling can provide that donation later on in life when necessary. So what right. they're effectively doing is creating a guaranteed match for any donor, anything that... Uh, which is often... A, which, to be fair, is, is a, a pretty big problem, a problem of finding yeah. a, a suitable donor for, the, for these organ Especially donations. for things like bone marrow transplants. Right. Well, even then, with creating the designer savior sibling, which is a concept that I just find super gross and icky. It's really weird. Even then, there are an environmental and stochastic factors that you can't account for, like cytomegalovirus exposure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or other kinds of just random things that happen to you in your life, and you, you develop an immune response that your sibling you're supposed to be giving your kidney to might not sure. have been exposed to. So that, that makes you... Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I think there are a couple really important <coughs> questions to ask whenever you're just considering this idea, and that's just like, should the parents originally have to have had the intention to have more than one kid in order to be able to create a savior sibling? A, important. And, I mean, I, I'd probably say no. And also, how will this psychologically affect 
the second child if this happens or if they learn why they were born in the first place if their parents weren't originally planning on having more than one child. Right, because there's a very vast difference between, like... Vast difference? Vast difference uh, between having a kid who... Uh, like, say, kids are two years apart, and then when they're both, you know, 20, 22, one of them has some serious problem where they need an organ donated or, or you know, something, some sort of transplant. And then the other kid's like, oh, this is easy. Take it from me. Versus... A kid that you know well ahead of time is going to have problems and being like, we should have a backup kid just in case we need to, you know, harvest them. Yeah, well, it's also the idea of consenting the unborn child to when they're a, medical procedures. When they're a kid, they're going to, like, give up part of their body. Yeah. <clears throat> so there's a really good book, that was, fiction book, that was written about this whole concept if you are Holes? intrigued by it. No, it's not Holes. Wow. But Holes is also a very good book. Um, <laughs> Sorry. But it is called My Sister's Keeper by Jody Picoult. And if you want to learn more about what it's like to be a savior sibling, I guess, then check that out. This is fictional. From your local library. <laughs> it is fiction. Get out your library card. Open, wait. No, nope. open your wallet. Libraries don't exist anymore. Get out your library card. What's a what's a library? Turn on the internet. Oh, okay. Got it. Oh, the internet. And illegally yeah. download this book. I live there. Plug in the internet. Go to Amazon.com where right. the books live. <laughs> okay, so he's basically so at this watch point in the, the movie, pages. right? Him and his brother, they have these tensions, and as they you watch them growing up, we're still in like the first beginning of the movie, but yeah. This is where a lot of the ethics and the science comes in. Ethan Hawke realizes that he needs to stop viewing himself as other people as are viewing genetically him. genetically inferior. As genetically inferior, yeah. and that he has the potential, to, if he sets his mind to something, then he can achieve his dream. And there's an important scene that triggers this. One time, after he's in the midst of training, his father said, oh, you're garbage, it's not going to happen. And he's trying to, he's going through this process of self-improvement, where he and his brother go out and they play their swim chicken again, and his brother, Anton, (laughs) starts... Chickens uh, can swim, actually. Did you know that? uh, What birds can't swim? I don't know. I I bet an ostrich can't swim. So they're playing... uh, (laughs) They're playing ostrich. They would just stand on the bottom of the pool. Like, why am I here? (laughs) So anyway, they're swimming out into the ocean, and his brother, Anton, uh, at this point, is the first to fail, basically. So he goes under the water, Vincent turns around, realizes his brother is drowning, Saves him, drags him back to shore, and this is like the turning point for Vincent, where the the point where he says, "Oh, this is crap. I'm better than my genetics say that." Yeah, he was basically like he buries his brother in the sand and consumes his power. He does, and goes on to become the one true king. He completes the ritual. Yeah, Yeah. this is actually sorry. It's actually called Gattaca colon Highlander Part Two. Yeah, yeah. He cuts off his brother's head. He cuts off his head, and then there's a quickening. There's a quickening. Yeah, where's it? We have to stop with these. Tangents. So either way, he decides that he's better than people say he is, mm-hmm. and he packs up and leaves his home in a really short scene that's just, like, there's, I mean, there was an impact there, but it's not all that addressed. They just or, look at each other. They just kind of look at each other. Yeah, he, uh, we see Vincent walk up to the family picture. He rips his own face off. Not his actual face, but in the picture. Uh, <laughs> and then we, we see... <laughs> yeah, and it's John Travolta. We, <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> We see, as that, as, that, as that piece of the picture rips away, we see Anton behind him just sort of looking at him, 
Vincent gives him this thousand yard stare and then walks out of his life effectively. Yeah. yeah. Stare. And then nothing happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And the next thing it cuts to him wearing a janitor outfit as he uh, he says he cleans half the toilets in the, in the country uh, because he couldn't get a job anywhere else effectively. To which so. Kenan because hilariously of said, well, it's because he's only cleaning half the toilet he has to clean the whole thing. <laughs> it's a really funny Which joke. was just a side splitter. I it mean, I'm good. still in stitches. No, are funny. you my dad? <laughs> no, you're my dad. Oh. Okay, great. But either way, so he eventually ends up cleaning the toilets uh, at Gattaca, at the actual Gattaca facility. Um, and this is where, you know, these wheels start turning even more. He starts working out more. He starts reading. About space exploration. He starts reading about about space exploration. Yeah, he mentions that he's, you know, read celestial navigation like 45 times. Um, And he knows it by heart. He knows it by heart. And then he, but he still has this realization. He's like, no matter how much I put forth, my genetics are going to hold me back from being able to do this job. And he knows this. Yeah. So he basically finds a person that he can impersonate for money. Tony Shalhoub introduces Yes, yes. He finds this, like, black market genetics dealer who played by Tony Tony Shalhoub. Shalhoub, Which was not... He did look like the devil, but it was not all that convincing. So, if he's essentially magically delivering genes to Vincent, would you call him a genie? Oh my god. He finds a genie in the in the <laughs> fucking want ads or whatever in the newspaper. Or if the classifies if, if, if he's stealing genes, he could be Gene Robinberry. You guys are you know what? We made fun of them for saying degenerate and we have already said about seven <laughs> puns and we're not even to the part where he's in Gattaca yet. No no, he's there now. Okay, but like actually there. Oh, okay. Okay. So Tony Shalhoub is helping him out. Tony Shalhoub says, if you're in this, I got the perfect person for you. This guy can like run through a wall. He's like faster than an ox. He's like faster than a speeding bullet. Can leap tall buildings in a single bound. bound. He's a bird. He's also a Yeah. He's Bruce Wayne. He introduces him to Jerome Moreau. Moreau. And the reason that Jerome... Played by Jude Law. Played by Jude Law. The reason that he is offering up all of his bodily fluids, his DNA, his identity... To be used by someone else is because he is now crippled. Right? Take another crippled. It's not the right word. He is paralyzed. Paralyzed. That's a good point. They say crippled in the movie, but that is a ninety-seven. That's true. So, well, the reason he's uh, such a quote specimen too is they mentioned that he's an Olympic swimmer. So right. They say right. he's in like peak physical condition. Yeah. So Vincent is a goofy-looking dude at this point, yeah. and so when Tony Shalhoub introduces them, he's like, "We look nothing alike." Glasses, bad hair, the yeah. teeth. The teeth. There's a tooth situation. Jude Law's teeth are immaculate. Jude Law has and beautiful teeth. Jude Law in general was beautiful. Oh yeah, definitely. God, he really was though. He's beautiful. Sploosh. Uh, Ethan Hawke, not so much. They they put a lot of emphasis on making us as the viewer identify immediately the insufficiencies of, of Vincent's genetics just by his physical appearance. But yeah, so the whole point is they point out they have these physical differences, right? And Tony Shalhoub says like, no one cares. No one's going to even notice. They don't look at your face. They look at your genetic identity. Yup. Right. So that comes more into place when Vincent actually enters Gattaca, but they undergo this whole transformation process a la Princess Mia Thermopolis yep. in... Um, She's all that. The princess... What? 
Diaries. Princess Diaries, did yeah. I, did I say Princess Bride? Yeah, you did. You did. I was kind of, yeah. I was like, what? I don't remember that scene. But I just sure. went with it. Oh, it's Anne Hathaway. Where Anne Hathaway, Anne Hathaway. Who everyone knows is beautiful. <laughs> I mean. You're going to have fun. She's anyway. not fooling anybody. I Anne Hathaway. It's like another teen movie as well, you know. So in the transformation process and in, in turning Vincent into Cinder- Cinderella, basically, into yes. Jude Law, um, they do a lot of things that are basically forensic manipulation of the security systems installed at Gattaca that Vincent identified during his time as a janitor. And so he spends a lot of time pushing random buttons and learning about the security system and learning if I were to get in here under the radar, how would I need to do it? And so they collect urine samples, blood samples, hair samples, fingernail clippings, um, uh, yeah. Skin samples, skin, like skin samples. Uh, yeah. anything skin you could possibly think of, they have it, and so it, it goes through this process of where he's developing these fake fingerprints because part of the entry process, like one would swipe a metro card to get into a subway, you do a fingerprint uh, prick, yep. and they sequence your DNA and confirm your identity, and so he has to make these fake little blood pockets on his fake fingerprints so he yeah. can pass for he has these like law. patches that he puts over the right. Covers, right? And, and I think we could probably hand wave from the movie here a little bit that during these different processes they probably use different things in order to identify a person. Yeah I suppose. I mean right, right because they, it takes a little bit of time when they're doing it with pee. It takes even more time when they're doing it with blood and it takes almost just seconds for the entry mechanism right. for a single drop so it's possible that they just take a sample early on and they look for something that's very distinct right but coupled with all of this they they do a complete overhaul of Vincent's physical appearance they whiten his teeth they give him contacts they cut his hair and style it in the way that Jude Law is known to wear it and they also make him taller yep. yeah this was like the most extreme physical correction that Home they did over, yeah. they were looking at him he's like I'll wear lifts and they're like yeah <laughs> No. You hey, can't buddy? wear lips, yeah. but you're not tall enough. Yeah. You're gonna wear high heels. If yeah, because it was a. I think it was a good five inches that they talk about that he had to magically grow overnight in order to become Jude Law. And there's a pretty solid joke where Ethan Hawke looks at Jude Law who's sitting in a wheelchair and he goes, "How tall are you?" And he goes, four foot five." <laughs> and he's like, "Before you broke your legs." <laughs> Corey, you were actually telling us we were watching the movie that this surgery is actually a thing that has happened in China before. It's real, yeah. Taller. So the, it started back in 2007, and I read about it on the internet as one does so what they do is they essentially separate your tibia and fibula and insert a bracket they do this incrementally so that the bone will have time to come back together essentially growing new bone and making you artificially taller i guess there are photos online of the corrective surgeries that have been done for conditions like polio and rickets using similar techniques so it's um, essentially putting pressure on the bone to make it grow. Which is like a very invasive, Oh, it's rigorous super invasive. Yeah. Like so it, it shows him... It's not an outpatient procedure. <laughs> no, it's certainly not. Right. It shows him post-surgery, and he is in um, leg immobilizers. Um, and so he's got, like, the pins in his legs that have, like, the, the Lego-looking cage. He looks like he just built a Kinex Ferris wheel around his leg. <laughs> it really does. The Beautiful. best part is he's lying on the floor. There are, like, right. no bed. All right, you just got to deal Absolutely. with it. Well, he's lying on the floor, and then another shot, he's lying on a counter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, they yeah. just got him lying Or like a buffet. Yeah. They, yeah. 
Well, they didn't do any of this at a hospital, right? They did this right. all... Right, it's all under the table. Right, yeah, in the basement of Jude Law's apartment. Tony Shalhoub doubles as, like, a, an optometrist. Yeah, he, as a dental technician. Yeah, he does like, everything. He's like... Tony Shalhoub literally prescribes him contacts, so we're led to believe that, you know, all of this is done basically right. Loki. Yeah, he's like, don't worry, I got a guy for this. I got a guy for that. And he's every guy. Yeah, and he also <laughs> tells him that all the equipment needs to be returned in seven days if you're found out. Which, which is, was like, awesome. Which is, like, ridiculous, because... What? They don't actually talk about the legality of the situation of impersonating someone. Like, it's right. presumed that it's illegal, but I don't know don't what the punishments the are and the severity and stuff right. like that. Later on, I think it's just implied that he's committed fraud, effectively. Right. It's, uh, yeah. it's, he stole granted, someone's identity. Right, exactly. Now, in, in this case, it is consensual identity theft, but at the same time, he's committing fraud every single time he signs his name, shows up for work, anything like that. So he's undergone this transformation. He sits in this incinerator and he uses a Brillo pad and scrapes all of his skin cells, all of his excess skin cells off to try and get as much as he can to keep them from like falling off while he's at work. He doesn't want to shed and, at work and reveal his true self. Right. And there's this blue light there that like might be UV light, presumably. We've been ta- calling it the science light because there's a lot Every of blue light. Scene, yeah. yeah, whenever there's yeah. science stuff. But if it's a UV light, let's like, would this cause any problems with like his process? Would he look the same as he does in the movie when he finishes this? Or well, he'd like, be a lot tanner. He'd be a lot tanner, right? Or redder. He'd or be a lot tanner. He, well, if he's constantly exposing his skin to UV light, maybe he's got some like I don't know. Accumulating Melanomas. random mutations in his uh, in his skin cells well, that, uh, that could result in I don't know. Never mind that he's staring directly into it every time he's in there, so he'd be blind. Big old problem. <laughs> oh, true. That would be the biggest. That's issue. not a big deal because he was already blind. At, apparently, the bulk of the movie is him at Gattaca going through a bunch of rigorous physical testing, and yep. there's this murder that happens, okay? so A murder the, a most, murder most foul. foul. There's a mission director who apparently was, like, close to catching him and is also, like, poo-pooing their launch to Titan. He's like, there's not enough time, not enough money. They don't even know, talk about... You never meet it, the character. It's a, he's the budget cut. Yeah, guy. he's like, we don't have the money for this or whatever. They, you don't meet him alive. You see his dead body. He's only important while dead. So they basically find yeah. his dead body, and there's a week before the launch that Vincent is supposed to go up in and so he's like the guy's dead who almost found me out and like I didn't do it I don't know why it happened but like I'll be fine you know I'm gone in a week yeah so he thinks he's just gonna like Andy Griffith walk and whistle his way out of this situation but shit meets fan and one of his eyelashes falls out yeah right so the police are there and of course the way they do the forensics right since they already sequence everybody's dna when they see them they literally just collect they vacuum collect nail clippings sweep the benches sweep Mm -hmm. their like desks and they sequence everything and they find in all the stuff that single unaccounted for for eyelash exactly like oh it's an invalid his name is vincent and like he physically his appearance has been altered to look like Jerome, but you can, if you really looked hard at him, you could tell like, oh, this is the same guy in that picture. But the whole premise of the movie is that no one does. Because yeah, it's a real Clark Kent see, Superman right, situation. They see, right, it's, yeah, exactly. Right. Like he walks into a phone booth and like Jude spins around a bunch. Yeah. So there's an ongoing investigation. The detectives are like constantly screening for blood, constantly like sweeping yep. his bench. And they find like, again, oh, there's more skin samples we found another run of this invalid so it shows up more than one time because he goes there every right because he's there every day yeah and so they're like okay someone's here like he's 
you know, playing recordings of his heart rate while he's jogging and stuff because he has a heart condition. He's doing all these things to deceive them and it's working. He, he recorded Jude Law's heart so he could play it over mm-hmm. his own to fool the heart rate monitors. One of the other things that uh, Ethan Hawke's character does when he goes in and they have they have screenings where they go into this room, and this is very, very early in the movie and kind of establishes the tone of the movie. Right. Uh, he goes in and he has to pee in a cup, and while he's doing it, the doctor is just staring directly at him um, and commenting very casually on the shape of his penis. Um, while <laughs> he's like, you got a great hog, man. Yeah, dude, this solid hog. <laughs> And then, he, and then the doctor's like, man, wish my parents had picked one out like that for me. Yeah, and Ethan Hawke's <laughs> like, oh, fuck, man, can I just pee in this cup, please? While he's running a tube, I guess, down the base of it and then and then draining that into the cup so that it doesn't get found. I am a huge true crime buff. Tell me. Forensic files actually talked about this because there was a person who fooled a urine test. And so what they do is they take the the uh, piss bag holster, I guess you call it, which is taped to uh, his thigh. And it's essentially an IV bag full of urine. And it's um, right. he's running a very thin gauge um, soft tube and he just tapes it to the underside of his penis. So what usually when people urinate, they hold their bits. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't yeah, have they, these bits, so they, I just... They do. We definitely hold I don't think the guy was holding a magnifying glass up to his dick. Like, yeah, yeah, he does he the, can, like, conceivably... He does the casual sneak in a look. We should be, so maybe that's... put another disclaimer at the beginning of this episode. <laughs> we got a lot of ding-dong talk in this episode. I, I suppose, but... wing-wang. The important thing is... He is does that deceive him. He deceives yeah, him, yeah. and the doctor comments very heavily on a situation. The thing is, you find out at the end of the movie, the doctor is sort of suspected the entire time. Spoilers! Well, we're... This whole thing's a <laughs> But, like, the, the doctor... Kills him, actually, so. If you're worried about the doctor being able to, like, conceivably no. buy his charade... He doesn't. He doesn't. So, I suppose, yeah. So, I mean, it's not... Shouldn't be a sticking point. So, now the movie sort of progresses where he's trying to dodge the police, and there's this budding love interest with Uma Thurman, which yeah. is Uma honestly, Thurman. like... I don't think it's that... It's not really that interesting. It's not it, that great. It honestly, just, like... It wasn't... Is- Lacking. Well, it wasn't that it was shoehorned into the movie. It's just, I I think it was a mixture of like. It was, yeah, it felt really shoehorned into the movie. But there's also this, at the same time, this plot that no one believes Alan Arkin, who's the detective character initially, who thinks, you know, not that Ethan Hawke specifically is doing it, but that this is a person who's undercover, right? And is just pretending to be somebody else. They call him what? A a ladder? Uh, A broken ladder. A broken ladder. Borrowed. Borrowed Borrowed ladder. ladder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're saying, you know, and this is a term that's obviously specific because it's been done before. Is that referencing, like, the double helix, the DNA, or something? Uh I would think so. Did you guys not think that already? No! I thought it was like... You're just smarter than we I are. thought it was like literally using a borrowed ladder to help yourself get ahead. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Well, that makes more sense. Why I don't we see say that, that there's both? There's a metaphorical it's aspect. It's and it's more, hey, por que no los dos? Por que no los dos? Ah! Can I also say that in regard to the love story that we we're kind of briefly talking about mm-hmm. here, like say yes. in in most in most movies that Uma Thurman is in, she doesn't have a whole lot of like speaking lines. Here that, it comes. I say that she no 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 no, but he, just 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 wait. Uma, I'm sorry. Th- I'm sorry. Th- Uma Thurman. <laughs> 
Uma the Thurman. Uma doesn't normally have a whole lot of speaking lines. Because she's a, because she's a, a church she's a, would give her Thurman. <laughs> she's a great nonverbal actress. Like, I think she does a very good job portraying emotion and acting without saying much. But she, And then she has kind of a similar thing here where she doesn't really have a whole lot of lines. But honestly, like we were talking about, the romantic story in here is completely horrific and it's not convincing. Uh, and it's pretty actually use, useless to the plot aside from the end of the movie, which we'll talk about. Yeah, I mean, it does serve to like give a reveal, basically. Yes, so yeah, that's so, it. So though. let's move ahead to where they're, they're going on a date, right? They go on a date. Um, Vincent tells Jerome, like, hey, I'm going out. Like, everybody's... He's obviously nervous yeah. because he's like, oh, I met a girl. He left his glasses on by accident and stuff. Yep. So he goes... Uh, on this date, and they yeah, they have, go see a pianist play. Yeah, they see a pianist play. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, a six fingered pianist. Uh, twelve. Twelve. <laughs> well, six and eight hands. Sure. Yeah, six and eight hands. They go on a date. They're leaving. They're doing a bunch of screenings, and as they're driving, they realize they're approaching a checkpoint where they're mm-hmm. looking for murder suspects. So Ethan Hawke or Vincent impersonating as uh, Jerome, he's wearing contacts, and he sees that they're using a UV light. And so he very this, deftly, yeah, just yeah. like uses one hand and like swiftly pops out both co- both contacts and just like dumps them in the street. I'm I am sure we have some listeners who wear contacts and they know that that never happens yeah. on purpose. He was literally one handed, just like boop, boop, pulls them, them both, both out. out. You so. all, it, you I they mean, always fall out when you rub your eyes and they just pop out yeah. in the middle of I don't know when you're at a park. No, I don't wear contacts, so I don't know. It's but it's always did seem a the least feasible. opportune time. I use both hands to take out each contact, so. I mean, I'm very precise about it. But Either way, you saying, are a scientist. He plucks them from his face like a magician. It's, yeah, it is. It's, but so the whole point of this is his contacts are corrective. Like, he can't see very well without them. So he takes them off. He's able to evade the test. And then him and Uma have this budding love interest. And she's like, I want to show you something. And she's starting to find out that, like, realize that he's something's weird lying about things because he goes to cross the street and he can't see so he like runs across it and risks getting hit by a car and, and he's very nervous he gets to the other side Numa Thurman's looking at him like she's like are you what okay are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. and he's like oh it's fine it's fine it's just, uh, we're gonna go. miss the thing let's go see the thing yeah so yeah anyways, the thing yeah. is a field of solar panels yep so again, this is their first date so she starts to suspect something they have this whole back and forth like oh I sequenced you and like I'm into you and all this stuff. and So she actually, like, broke into his desk and stole a hair off of a comb. That he had planted there. Right. Yeah. So it was actual Jerome's hair. Yeah. And she sequenced it and she's like, oh, you're perfect. And he's basically, this whole thing is, like, he's into her because of who she is, ideally. And he wants her to be into him because of who he is. And they start getting this whole relationship, even though she knows that he's, like impersonating someone or suspects he's impersonating someone it's not really relevant to the science but eventually they end up you know loving each other or whatever so it it does provide a an undercurrent of like fear that if you know if he does go out with her and interacts with her that she could just easily take some of his dna get it sequenced and find out that he's not right well and this whole thing that like now he's about to go to space for a year and he actually is like falling in love with somebody and has to leave but it obviously doesn't stop him so the second date they go on, the cops bust in, right? So this is towards the end of the movie. The cops bust in. They escape. They, like, run out. And he physically beats up a cop that is trying to stop them from exiting the building. Um, he and- actually, uh, I don't know if you noticed, but he, right before punching the cop in the face, he wrapped his hand in his jacket. Like, he pulled his hand into his sleeve, presumably so he wouldn't leave any DNA on the cop. chicken wing. Yeah. And then he headbutts him directly in the teeth. Oh, which defeats the entire purpose of that. It's great because the cop's just laying there bloody on the ground, like... (laughs) Yeah, so they... 
it, you start to find out like they they're escaping, they're evading the police. They there's a great sex scene, I guess. I don't know. It's like more of the illusion. There's a sex scene. Great. It's just yeah. there's a sex scene, right? And so we get this one scene where the detectives are uh, they're like, okay, well, we know definitely that this is a guy called Vincent. He's an invalid. He's an invalid. He's not who he says he is. Um, they confront Uma Thurman once they figured out that they were together, right? And they tell her, I'm sure you can tell us where uh, where Vincent's gone gone to. Jerome. Jerome, sorry, where Jerome is, yeah. Because they, that's right, they think Jerome is they think Jerome has killed him. Uma Thurman tips off Vincent and says, you know, get out of here, get out of here. Vincent, you know, fucks off for he a says, little bit. Oh, you don't feel well, go home. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so she tells the cops, Oh, Jerome went home early, he had some nausea. Vincent calls real Jerome ahead of time, calls Jude Law and tells him, Hey, you don't have a lot of time. The cops are on their way to your place. Jude Law then army crawls up, literally army up crawls. two flights of stairs, gets himself into a chair and then crosses his legs manually and wipes his brow and is just like, oh, good evening. Good morning, officer. How can I help you? Mm-hmm. And then yeah. there's this very awkward interaction between him and Uma Thurman, who has never met the yeah. actual Jerome before. <laughs> never seen him before. And he's like, sweetheart, come give me a kiss. And Where, she's where's like, my kiss? She's Where like, my kiss? right. And because she's so close with Vincent and like they just had sex the night before, like she sees Jude Law and realizes that is not Jerome. Like, but everybody else doesn't really put this distinguish the two, but she sees him as like, this is not the guy that I was just with right. last night. But she keeps it, keeps her cool. So the detective sees Jude Law, goes up to him and takes blood straight from his vein, tests it, and realizes. This is Jerome. All right. And he leaves because they get a call from his partner and he says, hey, guess what? We found out who the murderer is. It's the guy who's in charge of Gattaca. Yeah. He didn't like that the mission director was trying to stop the launch because there's not another one available for seven years. So he just murdered him. And now he's telling us because we like found an old sample and it's too late to stop the launch. We found we found spit in his eye. So yeah. Presumably yeah. He spit on him and then hit him with the right. keyboard. So the reason that they ended up catching him is because they started doing this um, blood draw, urine sample, saliva sample, dragnet of everyone that had come into Gattaca to figure out what have we missed. Right. And so during during that whole point, there's a scene where Vincent has to fool a blood test because obviously he does not have all of Jerome's blood. And they're instead of doing the finger prick, which he could easily fool, they're doing a straight from the vein draw. And so he had to do a quick swapsies with a, a blood vial that matched the ones that the doctor had. And he's like, how you hurt me? And like jumps up, rips the needle out of his arm, blood everywhere. It's really gross. And then does a little switcheroo. Problem solved. Yep. So that has actually been proven possible to do. There's a court case from, I think, 1984, where a woman was assaulted by her dentist, but she could not prove it. They, The man took three different blood tests and passed each of them and, and could not be matched to the semen sample that was found on her body. And um, so what he had done... Yeah, semen's a really gross word. Sean's making a face. Um, so what he had done was he had taken an IV bag of, of blood that he had gotten somewhere, and he had locally injected the donor blood, which matched his blood type and all of his other features that he needed to match in order to not elicit like a huge immune response and die, he had locally injected it into his arm. And so when the technician went to draw blood, he purposely handed them that arm. And so they drew the donor blood out. And that's how he beat the drug test, blood test, not drug test. 
And so he did that a total of three That's times. Wild. Yeah. And then so finally the technician was like, huh, give me your other arm and drew blood from that arm. And he got caught and is still in jail. Good. Boom. That's, That's awesome. Yeah. Cool. It was super cool the, really the, that he had the idea to do it. It was like totally bug wild that he actually beat a blood test that way. Yeah. I mean, do not try at home. But yeah, don't. Yeah, don't assault people. Also, yeah, also yeah, don't, don't assault do that. people. Uh, that's that's probably worse than trying to beat a blood test. If everyone could just be it cool, it'd be really great. Actually. Yeah, be cool. Um, I guess the day of the launch now, right? Day Maybe the day before. before. Day before the launch. Yeah. And you find out that the detective that's been investigating him this entire time is actually his brother. Yep. He confronts him at Gattaca when nobody else is around. Yeah. yeah. He confronts him and is like. I know it's you, Vincent. Like, our parents assumed that you wouldn't have outlived them and stuff, but I right. suspect you're still there. So they have this whole, like, pissing contest, essentially. Well, <laughs> and Anton also, like, initially says, hey, you know, like, I'll help you. We, I can get you out of this, blah, blah, blah. Like, you have classic, to stop. Classic cop stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, I, you know, I, and, yeah, breaking the law, like, offering to shelter a few possible No, future. like, offering to, like, oh, I can let you down easy. Like, I'll yeah. put in a good word for you. Like, we could reduce your sentence to, like, 20 years instead of 25. And, of course, to Vincent, it's like, oh, you don't mean to succeed, blah, blah, blah. And they go back and back and forth until finally the le- the time that makes the least amount of sense but makes sense for the plot. He says, I'm going to challenge you to a swimming contest again. And then they go out to the ocean. They strip completely nude, which didn't make any sense. Nice. And then they swim <laughs> in the dark out into the middle of the ocean in order to have this contest again. Yep. Um, and they go back and forth a couple times while they're out there until repeat scenario when it happened the last time. And it was formative for, di- for Vincent where Anton goes under Vincent saves him and they drag him back up on shore and then we fade to black as uh, Vincent and Anton are doing the backstroke back on the shore. Yeah, and he says when they're out there, he goes like, how'd you make it? How'd you beat me? And he says I never saved anything for the swim back. I gave it 110%. Basically like he didn't care about getting back. Like he put everything he could into whatever he's doing and that's why he's succeeding. This so. is a beautiful metaphorical moment Very beautiful. that we experience. I don't know why they were naked. Well, that's also metaphorical, obviously. All right, so now it is the day of the launch. Um, Vincent goes up to the real Jerome, Jude Law, and he says, like, I'm good to go. Cleared for launch. Like they, party. they caught the other guy. I beat my brother to a swim contest, so I guess he just gave up on trying to I won to the talent me. show, yeah. <laughs> like, it was sick. Yeah, he was like, <laughs> I, I won, so, you know, I'm we're good, good to go. go. Jude Law shows him, like, hey, while you've been gone, I've been collecting a lifetime worth of blood and urine samples for yeah, you. Yeah, DNA samples So Jerome will still be here for you when you get back. I'm going on a trip. And Why are you like, going on a trip? Where are you going? Oh, I'm going to be traveling. The, the scientific comment I want to make about this stockpile of blood and urine that <laughs> yeah. has been given It's supposed to, to last for a year for, while for, he's at a Titan. While he's yeah. in space is that he opens a refrigerator. Four degrees Celsius. So everything is liquid. <laughs> yeah, going back to and our complaint about the Jurassic Park thing, right? Bl- right. Again, all these movies, they're like... Just freeze your shit. Well, at Hollywood. least in this one... Just freeze it. At, at least in this one, it wasn't a freezer yeah. that just had non-frozen stuff in it. That's this true. This was a refrigerator, yeah, but the yeah. thing is, like, you can't store blood for a year in a refrigerator. It's just gonna... It would like, be separated. It'll be separated. Yeah. It'll you be degradation. Like, yeah. Also, throughout the movie, we see a lot of um, bodily fluids stored at room temperature. If you're a bodily fluid being stored at room temperature, you are going to very quickly degrade. And what uh, Vincent needed this stuff for was the DNA, and then your DNA degrades, and it's it's bad. It's just goop at that point. Exactly. It's the last day. He gives him his treasure trove of blood and (laughs) and urine. full of presents. (laughs) Yeah. 
And uh, Vincent goes in for his last check right before uh, it's a spaceship. It's a surprise check. Surprise check. Ready for it. He walks in to board the shuttle, and they go like, oh, uh, new policy. We're checking everybody. Dr. Tech. Piss is there, yeah. Which he didn't bring any samples. <laughs> He's like, I don't need it. I'm going to space. Which is, it's, I'm kind of amazed at how fast he just, like, rolls over. Like, he starts to pee. I could have been a contender. Dr. Yeah, Miss is like, he was like, just, just remember, like, I was one of the best of them and stuff. And he's, like, alluding to, like, they fucking I'm got caught, me. I'm caught, like, um, this is the end. Right. Yeah. The... Dr. Piss, who is collecting the urine from him, says, like, you know, I never told you about my son. Like, he wants to be like you someday. And basically alluding to the fact that he's known or suspected the entire, entire time, time. Yeah. that he was impersonating someone, but he didn't give him up because he's like, I want my son to be able to, like, live his dreams also, even though genetically he's not supposed to achieve this. So he's sort of, like, rooting for him the entire yeah. time. So Dr. Piss has been, like, on his side. <laughs> he's seemingly. on his team. Yeah. yeah, he's on his team. Dr. And Piss, your secret friend. And he, like, he collects the urine, puts it in the machine, and it says invalid, because he just pees in a cup for real. Yep. And he's like, enjoy hey, your flight. He's like, for future <laughs> so, reference, uh, right-handed guys hold it in their right hand. Yeah. That's the last thing he says. That's what he says to him. And then he goes and gets into the shuttle. You see the shuttle launch, like the fire, the ignition goes off. The engine. The the fire comes out the bottom and uh, it goes up. Push rocket, go boom. Yeah, Yes, but as the ignition starts, (laughs) it cuts back to Jerome, who simultaneously. The real Jerome. The real Jerome, who has now climbed into their incinerator fully clothed and everything and he's got his second place medal on him he just kind of looks at the second place medal and he's like ready to die now which again the reason he has the second place medal is because he didn't live up to his genetic right uh, expectations expectations which is why he even was injured in the first place because he was trying to kill himself because he wasn't living up to his right uh, to his you know people expected the world of him and he felt like he didn't deliver like personally and stuff so right he's sitting in the incinerator and he burns himself alive but at the same time the rocket is launching in the film at least yes and then we slowly fade to black or i guess fade to stars uh as you know we see uh, Ethan Hawke's character sitting in a chair and staring off into space as he flies off into this literally Yep, and that is the end of the movie. Yes. Before we get into ratings, no rap siren yet, we should talk about the general ethics of this movie. General ethics. It's a good call. I think what we should do is go around the table and think and talk about what we think of how individuals are treated in this movie and how conception is treated in this movie. Michael Pace, the... Uh, uh, my big boy from Indiana. That was, that was so good. Yeah, my, yeah, let, me try, it. let me try again. My, Michael Pace, tall, pale, and handsome. Hit me. I'll be, gl- <laughs> I'll be glad to just lay it on you. All right, right lay it on um, like a baby. Um, I want to mostly comment on just kind of the overall ethics of how do we use this this uh, lovely technology that we have of identifying which genes influence which traits, and when is it appropriate to pick a trait for an embryo for a child, and when to just kind of let it go. And I go back and forth on this a lot. I'm usually a proponent of using science when we can and using the tools that we have to our own advantage. But after thinking about it a lot more, I really think that it would be best if this type of technology, and this plays into gene editing type of technology as well, influencing the, the genomes of human beings, just preventing deleterious mutations that are usually associated with disease is about, I think, as far as this type of technology should probably go. 
one thing that I highly value is a merit-based society where, where people can work for what they want to achieve despite whatever genetic or, you know, environmental background they have as well. And if you start to influence artificially someone's genetic background, as we see in the movie, it starts being considered and taken into question more so than it should be. I have, I have a counterpoint. Please. To, I want to hear your Are opinion Are you playing on. Devil's Avocado? Yes, I'm playing Devil's Avocado. So, <laughs> when parents, I guess, choose to either eliminate or select embryos that do not have these sort of deleterious mutations that are disease-causing, right? right. And, or at least how we define a disease as. Parents are essentially consenting for the children, right? They are performing some sort of medical or scientific selection process. So the ethical implication is that the parents are making this decision for the fetus, which in society we already do. Parents make ethical decisions for their children all the time, especially for medicine. But they also make decisions for them for non-medical things, right? How different is that from then applying you know, editing or selection to embryos that would give them a societal benefit, but not necessarily cure a disease, but rather give them an advantage. Well, this is where I see, I see your point. Um, I'll make the counterpoint that the ability to do that, the ability to give someone a societal advantage is usually going to cost money. True. And therefore you have this sick, we already have a, a large degree of income inequality in our country. And if you were to have this cyclical nature to where people who have just are better off financially are able to then literally pass on traits that enable their children to do better off in society. I know people use the word slippery slope all the time, but that is an incredibly slippery slope to where people with have the highest level of means are able to pass that on uh, just because this, this will, this will be a, like an a la carte system. Right. It's like a positive feedback loop, essentially. Like you make yourself, um, I guess, more, quote, successful in society, and then you have the means to do this again for your offspring, and they just keep doing that. That's where I feel like you have to draw the line somewhere, and I I don't think you can draw, you can argue as to what makes someone's life more, you know, beneficial, but that's, it's super messy. I think the monetary aspect is a very good point. Yeah. Tori, what do you think? I think that with this situation, there's a very fine line between selection for the benefit of the individual and eugenics. Mm-hmm. So this could very easily turn into selecting for the the genetic movie itself, elite? right? And yeah. and I don't like to use that term because it's always been used in a very uh, negative, negative, negative manner, right? Um, but it, it could easily escalate because this is a whole like. The Spider-Man principle where with great power comes great responsibility. And so we have to use the technology that we have in the way that benefits the world at large. The, the nature of science is not to be available to just the elite. And unfortunately, that's, that, that is what we deal with right now due to uh, financial limitations that people face. Like even with like, oh, I need this surgery to fix my heart so I can live. The cost aspect. So you believe that we should use these scientific advancements to benefit society rather than the individual as much. So, right, but... I mean, it will, in turn, benefit the individual, as the thought, right, but, like, right. the focus of the treatment is not the individual, it's that 
you are helping to eliminate this disease from the individual, and that also in turn does not skew society in some way. Exactly. So it's it's the principle of selecting against rather than selecting for. So you're selecting against genes that will give you a disease rather than selecting for being a boy or having blue eyes or being you know 800 feet tall like. So it's it, a it's long green gene. giant, yeah. yeah. Eight hundred yeah. feet, huh? Yeah. Interesting. Super tall. And uh, genetically, but yeah. So it, it it really comes back to how do we use the the fruits of our labor, basically. And I think that that is where we will kind of start to butt heads with with people who want to make money off of this product and, and off of the concept of gene therapy as a whole. Sure, Sean. I know you've said a lot already, but I think I've I think I said most of it. Like it's this movie is obviously theoretical and futuristic to some extent, extent, but like a lot of this stuff is really not that far fetched as no, people think. No, yeah, That's and true. you can read a lot about where people are sort of very alarmist about the way like people approach things because there aren't necessarily like laws in order for these things because they're newly developed technologies. Right. So there aren't pre existing legislation to govern this sort of thing, which is. Why, like, you know, the scientific community, you know, talking with, like, the political community is such a huge deal because scientists don't make these laws, but they're the ones that work on the process. But we're not also ethicists at the same time. I mean, we try and do that, but our expertise is in the science of the situation, right? So that's why it involves, like, a societal discussion in order to develop good policies that are to benefit everybody. So I wanted to make two points uh, just while we're still talking about ethics. Uh, One of them, we mentioned socioeconomic status uh, a couple of times. If you have access to money, then you're able to do these things. You're able to create a, quote, genetic elite. Um, But at some point, it's sort of implied that everyone has access to this technology. Yeah, like Um, it's so common that people can just Which may also imply that anyone who, you know, people who range from lower middle class all the way up to super high plutocrat, you know, high class individuals um, have access to it, right? But the thing is, is though, having a perfect face, (laughs) even in our society now, having a perfect face and perfect physical characteristics does not still guarantee that you're going to be, you know, a football player in the NFL. I know. They wouldn't let me play. Yeah, well, <laughs> you're short. Oh, um, <laughs> I'm fun-sized. Yeah. Uh, the other point that this brings up, too, is that even if we can make everyone perfect, not everyone is going to be an Olympic swimmer, right? There's not room for every person in the world to be a perfect individual who only does the things that pretty people and strong people get to do. And the movie does this... A little bit in a way that it shows us, you know, the remorse that Jude Law feels by being a quote unquote perfect person who like the perfect individual who only gets second place during a swimming competition in the Olympics. Right. And he's like, how perfect can I really be if I'm not actually right. getting first place? You know. So, so the question becomes like, we might think back to how many times people have entered into fields that allow them to treat these diseases or have strived to treat these diseases because they or a loved one has suffered from those things. So I think it would be great if we could eradicate all diseases, but we have to keep in mind, we have to keep the fervor that we have now. Another devil's avocado. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Devil's orange. Yeah. Is that... Devil's... 6.02 times 10 to the 20th. Devil's avocado. Avocado. That's good. Too bad it's going to get it out. No, No, it's staying in. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay, with removing the naturally occurring diseases that would otherwise keep populations at a manageable level, we're putting a further burden on an already overburdened planet. That's true. 
And this is also assuming that everything can be corrected by changing your genetic background, which is just not true. Yeah. There's just no, there are right. environmental factors. And they say in the movie, like, nobody's perfect, right? Like, Jude Law gets hit by a car. You can't genetically alter fate. You can't fate. genetically alter fate. Nobody's perfect. Yeah, so they, like, I think they touch on that in the movie, but they really don't address the actual impacts of that in the movie. Like, when you look at someone and you say, like, oh, you have a 46% chance, or 46% probability of developing heart disease, mm. or, like, 36% probability, what you're saying is, I don't know what's going to happen to you when you're older. Because the 36 probability at birth that you'll have a heart condition is not realistic to base any life decisions off right. of. It's yeah. also going to change as you grow up or and exactly. get older. Because the environmental factors that you go through during your life are going to influence yeah. different things. You're constantly accumulating mutations. When they're saying traits like, oh yeah, your eyes are probably going to be blue. Sure. How do you know that? Yeah. Well, not only that, but you're dealing with developmental factors such as a fostered intelligence. To give you an example, like if I were very tall, very strong, I played football when I was in fifth grade, got my ass kicked because I weighed like 40 pounds or something like that. If I, you know, were a perfect football player, I might not have continued to read, continued to study, because my options were, well, I can't play football, so I'm going to be a fucking nerd now, right? And so I may not have ever gone into science. You were always a nerd. That's true. (laughs) Yeah. You can't physically be the best at everything, even if you are perfectly genetically crafted to be that way, because you don't have the time. There are environmental factors that you need to consider. <sighs> Tori, will you do the honors? You gonna do it with me? Yeah, ready? Okay. Three, Three two, two, one. That's very nice. Good. That was right. wonderful. Oh, wow. I'm so glad I got to share it. It was with great. You. Tori, how about since you're the guest? Oh. Guest of honor. Why don't you rate first? Mm-hmm. Okay, so for entertainment value, I would say that I would give this probably a three out of five. And that's a Ooh. little bit harsh. But it's because the acting just wasn't that good. <laughs> While the science was interesting, I just like I couldn't get emotionally invested in in the plot. Preach. Which was which is something that's important to me as a person who watches movies. Mm-hmm. For the science factor, I'm gonna have to go with three out of five again. Alright, middle of the road. Yeah, they're realistic concepts, but I don't think that they were executed as well as they could have been. Also, you know, Grain of Salt, this was made in 1997. Yep. So I, I give them credit for having the idea, but it, it just, it could have been done better. So that's me. That's where I fall out. Pace. Ooh, me? Hit me. Okay. For entertainment factor, I'm gonna get it a big old two out of five. Damn. You know why? Why? Didn't like it. Didn't like the movie. Not Weird. really. So you gave it a 2 out of 5 and you didn't like it. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't like it. Uh, but let me tell you why I didn't like it. Let me tell you why I didn't like it. This is partially drawn from what Tori said. I was not emotionally attached to this film in the least bit. I mostly blame Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman for unconvincing <laughs> acting roles. No, but I, I mean, honestly, they... Ethan Hawke. No, but they, they didn't... I literally did not care the fate of either of those characters, really any of the characters in this film. It was a very cold film for me. None of them were um, particularly likable. No. Um, Jude Law was the most likable. Jude Law, Jude Law was the most likable. He was he was the best part about this film was Jude Law. Actually, I would say, and that's not because he's super dreamy. It's because it he was the only super, super dreamy. He's super he also dreamy. is a good actor. Uh, well, he's a very good actor, but he I, he's kind of probably the only character who, who I really saw any degree of emotion on his on his face in this film. Um, that that aside for entertainment factor, I do think the main redeeming 
quality of the film, this kind of goes with both entertainment and science, or just the overall themes brought up by this film. For 1997, it's very, very good. The themes brought up just in regards yeah. to genetic selection of embryos. So that goes into my science rating. I'm going I'm to give it a 3 out of 5 for science rating because... I think that they, again, they, they do a, they do a good job on this overall science theme. It's 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 fantastic. It obviously evokes some great conversation in us. It's incredibly interesting and controversial. Negative parts about the science is that they obviously put too much of the emphasis on the genetics of a human being as opposed to other factors which also matter, like epigenetics and the environment. Right. But that's partially, I think, the point they're trying to make with the film as well, is that genetics aren't all that matters. And I think that's actually one of the final main points that I want the listeners to take home as well, who don't necessarily have as much of a strong background knowledge about biology and genetics as we do, is that your genes only control so much. And we still don't know so many things about what genes control, especially in regards to multifaceted aspects of humans like personality and intelligence. Well, on different types of intelligence, there's, I mean, right. there's... That too. They mentioned IQ in the movie. It's not right. wholly deterministic. It's it's a rabbit hole. So to the to the listener, you know, there's so much more that matters than just your genes, uh, your your environment, and your... You're to be a little softy here, like, you you can influence your own, your own, your own fate, your own destiny. I don't believe in fate or destiny, but you know what I mean by that. Uh, in regard... Destiny's child. Sure. Uh, you have the power, so take it and use it. All right, that's my thoughts on this film. We might not know. Sorry, Tori, go ahead. We might. <laughs> we might not know much about your genes, but boy, do you look good in them. You look so good. You're beautiful, no matter what they say. Yeah. Nice. Canon. Words can't bring you down. Why nice. don't you rate this movie? So, as far as this movie goes, I am going to be a little controversial here. I'm going to give the entertainment value of the movie a four out of five. Okay. I enjoyed this movie. I think it plays like a 90s movie. So there's a little bit of a disconnect between watching a movie from 2018 and watching a movie from 1997. And oh, it, it comes... Yeah, boy, we old. It comes through... Yeah. Oh my god, that's cool. 21 years. Yeah, I'm going to be 29 in like a month. when Gattaca came out. <gasps> Oofa doofa. <laughs> I was five years I'm old. I'm just going to roll into the grave right now. Um, uh, by the end of the film, I actually did kind of give a shit about Ethan Hawke. I think a lot of the later scenes suffer from poor writing. Um, mm-hmm. I think having him flip immediately towards a defeatist attitude after punching a cop in the face to not get caught uh, is a little bit of just shoddy writing on the part of the movie itself. Yeah. Um, again, it was near the end of the film, so I guess it's, you know, you have to let that go to a degree. But he wasn't very well going to punch Dr. Piss in the face. Yeah, Dr. Piss was a nice guy. But I will say that... I enjoyed Dr. Piss. I, I don't think Ethan Hawke's style of acting, I don't think it required him to be particularly expressive for this, because he's, he's supposed so to literally, like, waltz into the shoes of another human being, um, and does a decent job of being fairly robotic, which is what they needed out of his character. So um, yeah. I'm also going to give uh, Jude Law in this movie a five out of five um, because he's gorgeous. Fuck yeah. He's oh, yes. beautiful in this movie. As far as the science goes, though, three out of five. For a lot of the reasons that we've mentioned before, yeah. um, I will – I super do appreciate the fact that this movie does not try and explain too much and leaves it up to the viewer because I think that makes – for a better style of science fiction film right. for you to sort Definitely. of fill in the gaps, much in the way that uh, our good friend John Hammond filled in the gaps uh, with frog DNA. Wow. 
D- oh, what a great callback. Dino DNA. Dino DNA. Go ahead. Okay, let me preface this. I have seen this movie. This is the fourth time I've seen this movie. This is the fifth time you've seen this movie. Fourth. In the past four years. Oh, Jesus. Um, because we showed this Jesus movie, Christ. I teach a gene therapy class at the University of Florida SSTP program, which is basically for high schoolers that ah, come s- here. Yes. They come, what does it stand for? I, I do not know what it stands for, which is why I said SSTP. Super sassy uh, Trevor party. Yeah. My husband would love that. Nice. My husband's name is Trevor. Anyway, it stands for Summer Science Training Program. <laughs> Go to hell, Sean. Students. I don't know. I've only <laughs> worked for it for the past three program. years, and I don't remember what it is. Is it students? It is Student oh. Science Training Simon program. Science well, Training Program. Wrong. I teach the gene therapy course, and our last class is about ethics of gene therapy. So then on the, the day after that, we have like a final day where they get to Come eat on. pizza and watch a movie, and we always watch Gattaca, because most of the students hadn't seen the movie, right? After seeing it for all these years, like, when I, I remember when I first saw it, I wasn't like floored by Gattaca. I didn't think like, oh, this is an amazing movie or anything like that. But I think for the entertainment value, I'd probably give it like a three and a half out of five. Because God, I, can you please commit to whole numbers? No, Cannon. I cannot. I cannot. So. Aria's pissed at you. Oh, your dog's mad at me. I'll give it a 7 out of 10. How about that? Uh, I'm okay with that. So it's a 7 out of 10 for entertainment. And a lot of the same reasons that Pace and Cannon said, like, pushed this Uma Thurman, like, love angle it that's going on the whole time. Unnecessary. And it basically. The Hobbit needed it. Yeah, it basically gave, like, a half assed love story and a half assed crime drama. Yeah. Like, if they could have just focused on one a little more, or at least, like, other scenes happening, like, a little more intensity in the situation. Yeah. Like, he also beats crime in a swimming contest, literally. Yeah. The end of this movie is him not getting arrested because he swims good. Because he swims well. Yeah. <laughs> so he can now do unlimited crime. Unlimited crime as a swim boy. But so that being said, for the entertainment value, going to the science, I don't think the movie is bad because of the way they did the science. I think that there are, it's not perfect, so I'm going to give it a, th- a 7 out of 10. Again, a 3.5 out of 5. Oh, right. So I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10 on the science. Cool. That's my opinion. Excellent. So, Kenan, do we have any uh, listener questions? Hold on. Let me go check the mailbox. Walk, 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 walk. You can't, okay, uh, hold on. We, we said this. You can't say walk. Uh, let me put my heels on. You're just banging two coconuts together. <laughs> Your foley work needs some work, Kenan. <laughs> Fuck you guys. You're not helping. Your foley okay, here, needs let, let work. Me do this. Let me do this. All right, I'm going to go check the mailbox. <laughs> what was that? What are you, Mario? I realized when I said I'll take this, I had no plan. You don't have anything. Do, so. Sean is now eight feet tall and just standing here. <laughs> don't eat these mushrooms in my house. <laughs> All right. All right. Do you think yeah, I'll, I'll just look it up on the internet. All right, so we have uh, our wow. first question comes to us from um, listeners. He was drinking a glass of water that entire time, too. It was so impressive. <laughs> I'm actually still drinking a glass of water. Yeah, wow, Kenneth, you, this is amazing. How are you doing this? So, our it's first extremely question. Extremely good of ventriloquy. <laughs> Guys, can I please read this? Yes. I'm so sleepy. No! You can't read it, Kenneth. <laughs> yes, read it, please. Our first question comes from friend of the podcast, David Bryce. Uh, he asks. How did Jude Law's character turn on the furnace once he was inside it? it l- there was a push button on the inside. I think what happened is he locked the door. And 
like I saw he reaches for a latch, right? And he hits the yeah. latch up. Yeah. And I guess it's like a auto blocking mechanism. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, why would you build that on the inside? Yeah, no, it's, it's <laughs> because you want to die. Yeah, it's a I pretty bad so. design. I, I mean, that's a great. Well, yeah, you know what, Greg? Pull one on the inside in case they want to kill themselves. What if they want to get out? So, to answer your question, David, we have no idea. It looked like from the scene where he activates the thing that he pushes a button on the inside. Yeah, that's, he turns on the fire somehow right. from the Yeah, we could just say it's a very poorly designed incinerator. It's right. the, yeah, yeah. the opposite of child-proof. Yes, yeah, I would child say so. Encouraged. It's where you normally store your children. <laughs> but to be fair, <laughs> in, I don't send my shower kids... shower science light murder right. machine. Right. Well, right. I don't, I don't send my kids to time out in an incinerator. So That's a good point. Maybe it's kind of like when you're painting the floor of a room and you... Uh, like when they were building this incinerator, you're painting the floor of a room and you paint your into a corner and you're like uh oh and so they had to put the button somewhere so they put it on the inside it could have also been like a science light skin scrapey room that they added a like fire, fire into to. <laughs> <laughs> like, they sort of did their own like DIY fire fireplace so maybe yeah I don't know I, it's a good question David thanks for writing in so we have one other question that uh, comes to us uh, over the gmail account which is realsciencecast at gmail.com if you listen you want to hit us up hit me up on my mobile uh, and this one actually comes from a uh, friend of the podcast Tori McCall who is that? that's a little weird that's not actually my last name do you, want, do you want to read it and just ask, ask us directly? Mackle? yeah oh Tori Mackerel do you want to read this question real quick? no I'm going to murder Kenneth so what Tori says is uh, hello you good boys I'm writing you with a question about Jurassic Park the park recapitulated plant life that existed during the Cretaceous period. This period, this is a period during ecological history where atmospheric carbon levels were significantly lower. What adaptations or modifications would need to be made to the plants in order for them to successfully survive in a post-industrial revolution modern world? Get good. Go ahead, Sean. Let's, let's hear it. You took a big, deep breath like you had something right. No, I was thinking, I honestly would say that most of these plants probably wouldn't thrive to the levels that they would have. Yeah, because you cannot change the atmospheric levels to that extent, like, unless you had them in some sort of dome, which you could do, but then people wouldn't be able to touch them. Like a biodome, for yeah. instance. Right. Like and a biodome. there. Polyshore's with Polyshore. Yeah. If you had, if you hired Polyshore as your gardener, then maybe he could help, help you out. But I honestly just don't think these plants, to like, really answer your question, I just don't think that's possible. You could also make an argument that, like, some plants are actually fairly adaptable. Some obviously won't be. So some of these might have actually survived, uh, yeah, even can, with a difference in environmental conditions. They might not just thrive to the level that they would have before. Agreed. Like, they could just not grow as intensely. Pace, you also took a deep breath. I've always been under the impression that carbon levels were much higher during any of the eras in which dinosaurs were the predominant species on our planet, as opposed to lower. Incorrect. Post-KT boundary, atmospheric carbon levels skyrocketed. Post-KT boundary. So KT boundary is the mass extinction event in which an asteroid is proposed to have impacted Oh, after Earth. after that event. Right. Okay. That's the event that caused atmospheric carbon levels to okay. begin to rise. Okay. And it just exponentially grew with the onset of the Industrial Revolution. What does KT stand for? Carrie uh, Trues? No. Katie I can't Carrie. remember something Triassic. Uh, Kenan... Smith. I can't remember. It's been a long time. Did you just pronounce Smith with a silent T? (laughs) (laughs) Ken Smith. (laughs) Ken Smith. Anyway, period. 
That's a great question. I yeah, I think the a lot of Cretaceous the Cretaceous tertiary. You may be Creta- able to the K is this an abbreviation for Cretaceous. Apparently, which, makes which no sense. that's pretty shit. Yeah, that's pretty weird. Maybe you could get enough local density of just like so many plants that they're all giving oh they're giving off oxygen. They're wow, giving off wow. so much oxygen it's displacing the CO two. <laughs> okay, John, this is a science podcast. <laughs> no, you're right. That's not possible. The plants just wouldn't do that. Well. Tori did send us a second question that says: Secondly, the extraction method used to isolate the blood from the mosquito's abdomen appeared to be conducted with a large bore needle. We did notice that. We talked about it a little bit. What kind of purification methods would be ideal for isolating the dinosaur blood from the cellular and biological contents of a mosquito's abdomen? I will say right now, not using a giant fucking needle. No, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. absolutely not. Absolutely not. If anything deserved a curse, that did. Yeah. I, I would have made a lot more sense for them to attempt to completely remove the abdomen of the mosquito from the interior of the amber uh, in a way that wasn't them, sh- I think we mentioned... Just fucking drilling into the sh- Yeah, rock. and shakily shoving a needle down in there, because if... Using sophisticated techniques... techniques it's not exactly A power precise. drill and a needle. Jurassic Park is the best to John made. Hammond as the Death Star is to John... Uh, Travolta. John Hammond. Vader. <laughs> John, John Vader. Vader. John Bon Vader. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Stay frosty from Tori. Anyway. Thank you very much for sending your question. You're welcome. Thank you, and also, guys. Thank you very much, David, for asking this question. And if you want to send in your questions, you can send them to realsciencecast at gmail.com or you can reach us on Twitter at realsciencecast. We also have a Facebook page, which is uh, on ah, yeah, Facebook. Just, just look up Real Science Cast. You guys are really creative. Yeah, so we try it's to keep it consistent, consistent so that people it's can reach brand. us. I love that we answered Tori's questions on the episode that she was guest starring. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's good to hear them in real time. Yeah. yeah. Most people have to wait a week. How about that? You're right. So Take if... Me outside. We should wrap it up now that I'm making that's the cue references. That's the cue. Oh, now that you're making tangential references, we should. Uh, hey, where yeah. can we find you on the internet? <laughs> on the internet, you can find me on the Twitter. All right, at Michael C. Pace. But don't cover your mouth when you say it. At Michael C. Pace. I'm sorry. It's okay. Uh, that's where you can find me. I'm also I'm also on like on other social media platforms, but. LinkedIn? I will be most likely to... You can find me on LinkedIn. I have actually a pretty in-depth LinkedIn profile. Pace actually um, writes articles on LinkedIn. I do write articles on LinkedIn. I just started doing this just to general science communication. Um, just to, you know, They're good, get the word out. I appreciate that. Geared towards the layman, the educated layman, I would like to say, which most of you probably are. So check them out. I, man, I hate the way you say words. Um, thank you, Kenan. Uh, Kenan does not get to, uh, to sign off because he's an asshole. So, Sean, how about you go? Uh, you can't find me anywhere. Go ahead and try. I'll let you. Go. I'll let you. I'll send out a beacon. Whisper when, into the wind. I'll send out a signal flare when my dissertation is finally published, and you can read that if you want. Trying to find Sean on the internet is like trying to take a high res picture of a Bigfoot. Like, yeah, it cannot yeah. be done. I'm always in the same position, just like kind of looking at the camera, like but it's the really You're slightly fuzzy, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, just tweet at the show or email the show and I'll get there. I check the Facebook page a lot. So if you actually want to post something directed at me, post on the the show's Facebook page. Post on the internet. (laughs) Kevin still can't sign off because he's still an asshole. (laughs) Where can people find you? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at at Skinny Dogs, where the O is a zero. That's my personal Twitter account where I talk about a lot of dumb shit. 
Um, but what you can also I find am. me on the podcast I am a part of, which is at Nerdy Bits Cast on Twitter. We talk about fun nerd things and do basically an advice show for anyone and everyone who considers themselves a nerd. It's a good show. It is. It's you and... And Heidi and Allie and Maddie. And if you want to talk to us, you can contact us through the Nerdy Bits page. All right, Kevin. Can I where go can we find you? Where can, can people go? find yeah, you? you? You can go. In the trash can where you belong. Uh, that's where I live, baby. That's where I've been <laughs> sitting this whole time. Roasted. You can find me, find me in the dumpster. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Alright, go ahead. Kenny, we're just kidding. You know, you're a great person. I'm just not going to edit this and it'll never come out. <laughs> Kenny, please tell us where people can find <laughs> So you can find me on, uh... Stop! Oh you can find my foot halfway up Sean's ass. <laughs> it lives there. So you can find me on uh, pretty much any form of social media, uh, at lolkennan. Um, I will be frequent- frequenting Twitter a lot more often when I'm not busy writing my dissertation. Uh, you can also find me on battle.net at lolkennan, where Pace and I often play video games. Do we do play video we games? We do play video games there. Uh, and you can find me on uh, the Nintendo uh, at LOL Canada. I recently got Switch. Maybe we can play snipper clips together. I love you. And that's about it. Instagram. Okay. Uh, you can find me on Instagram. Oh, we also have a Real Science Instagram, so which is also a Real Science Cast, where we post a picture every two weeks because that's how often we meet. <laughs> and yes. it's usually just of us being silly. Yeah, thumbs up and eating popcorn. Yep. Is that everything? Tori, do you want to say anything else while you have you on the podcast? I love you. Aww. Aww. Thank you so much for having me here today. This is really it's fun. I enjoyed it. Our pleasure. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks everybody for listening. My name is Kenan Smith. I'm Michael Pace. And I'm Sean Crossan. And I'm Tori Mackle. Yay. Stay classy. Stay classy. You don't need good science to make a good movie. Oh yeah, that part. Stay classy. <laughs> but stay classy. Stay classy. But Please. also put good science in place. But classy. Listen to nerdy bits. Please, we're dying. Stay classy. Me. I'm an ostrich. <laughs> That's what ostriches sound like, actually. Not <laughs> <Yeah>. me. <laughs> I'm an ostrich. They sound like Sean. Help me. I'm an ostrich. Okay, okay, okay. So we're going to obviously edit all this out. Yeah, Sean, Sean Crossstrich. <laughs> <laughs> You're fired. I love you. <laughs>